This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for February 23rd, 2024. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week, we have news hot off the presses from the AAAS annual meeting in Denver. Newsletter editor Christy Wilcox attended, and she brings us tales of tracing horses in the Americas and seeing the world through the eyes of AI using so-called image omics technology. News intern Sean Cummings also shares a conversation from the AAAS meeting with researcher Danielle Wood. They talk about using outer space to bring sustainability and equity to us down here on Earth. Next on the show, what makes snakes so special besides their amazing leglessness? Freelance producer Ariana Remmel speaks with researcher Daniel Roboski about the drivers of all the different ways that snakes have specialized, from spitting venom to sensing heat. All right, so now we have Christy Wilcox. She's the daily newsletter editor, but she also attended the AAAS annual meeting in Denver last week. She attended lectures, ceremonies, panel discussions, and just the whole time sending me audio clips and audio clips and audio clips, which is great. No complaints. Christy, how was the annual meeting? It was so much fun. It was a whirlwind, although it was a little cold. It definitely was cold for my coastal Pacific Northwest body. And uh, I'm not used to that altitude, but it was so much fun. So, so much fun. <laughs> what I definitely want to share is where you managed to talk to so many people on the same topic. I think it's really interesting. And this is a conversation with this, the winners of the Newcomb Cleveland Award. So it's the Newcomb Cleveland Prize. It's the oldest running award that AAAS has. Yeah. And this is for a science paper that talks about ancient DNA and tracing the arrival of horses in the Americas. Can you just give us like a super quick summary of the actual paper and its results? Yeah. So what they were looking at is horses originated in the Americas, but then some 10,000-ish years ago, they crossed the Bering Land Bridge into Eurasia and didn't look back. And so they were gone from the Americas. And then it wasn't until about 1519 when we had Spanish arriving in Mexico that horses came back to the Americas. And it was long thought by Western scientists anyway, that those horses didn't really make their way up across the Great Plains and into the Rockies until more like the 18th century. 
Like it took a couple hundred years is the way that Western scientists thought. To go from Mexico to the American West. Yes. But the indigenous peoples that lived in that area have long had these stories and oral traditions and science saying that, no, we've we've had horses forever, man. And so there was this conflict between what the Western scientists thought had happened and what the native tribes and the indigenous peoples thought had happened. And so what they did in this paper is they had, it was the Lakota actually went to scientists and said, we have all of this information in science. We want you to look into this with us. We want you to work with us and do the science to show what really happened. Okay, let's bring in some of the people that you talked to about this paper. There were a lot of authors on it, and I think you grabbed about four for this conversation. So I'm William Taylor. I'm an assistant professor and curator of archaeology at the University of Colorado in Boulder. William was originally working on the history of horses in Eurasia on the steppe, and then he was able to collaborate with all these different groups from the American West, which is actually where he's from. And here he's going to talk a little bit about how this connection with the indigenous perspective of the Lakota and other groups really supported the research in unique ways. For example, one of our really important finds came from southwestern Wyoming. We were able to talk over the significance with folks who knew that oral tradition, right, and the indigenous perspective on their history and their story. And so we started to realize that what could have been dismissed as an archaeological result that didn't fit the narrative coming from historical records, instead got to be embraced by folks who were bringing that expertise. And so not just our Lakota leadership here, but also our partners with the Comanche, Pawnee, Pueblo folks that were really able to, in part because of this sense of sort of friendship and trust, um, share the ways in which that oral tradition was being reinforced by the emerging archaeological discoveries. So what they found is that the native tribes were right. Those horses moved across the Americas much earlier than Western scientists thought. They found this because of ancient DNA, but also they found horse bones and they found the actual bones that dated back to the 15 and 1600s when, you know, supposedly horses weren't in the American West. All right, we're going to switch voices here. This is another Sarah. This is Sarah Traber. She's an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Oklahoma. And back in 2017, she was, you know, was talking about these horse bones that she found in an ancestral Wichita site. She was talking about this at a meeting and met with William Taylor. I think my poster abstract had horse as one of the keywords because we're really excited because horse bones are relatively rare to find in context archaeological sites. And Will Taylor was searching through the program for horses. He saw me, stopped on my poster, we went and had drinks, and he was just really interested in learning more about horses on the Great Plains, and I'm a Great Plains archaeologist, and so that's how I ended up like connecting with Will, and then it just snowballed from there. It's interesting because, you know, for the paper, for the method, they did end up using an older technology, radiocarbon dating, to update our ideas about what was happening with horses at the time. What's key here is that we're applying technology to horse specimens and bones that had long been thought to be much older in times, so like Pleistocene era horses, because there hadn't been a lot of research attention 
on the idea that you could actually find horse bones that are later in time, right, from the 1500s onward after the Spanish reintroduced horses to uh, North America. And so radar carbon dating was the first step is to identify which horses are Pleistocene era. Um, which would have been kind of before Spanish colonialism, and which horses were much more recent that we tend to associate with tribal nations today. So on top of radiocarbon dating, the researchers looked at isotopes and teeth and marks on bone to show that these weren't just wild horses that wandered and managed to survive. Here's William Taylor again talking about this human-horse relationship as evidenced in the bones. I think some of the really important things are just these snapshots that show us the complexity and the depth of that horse relationship. So we have a snapshot from Kansas, which shows us a horse that was ridden, a horse that was fed corn in the winter. We have a snapshot from southwestern Wyoming that shows us uh, a horse that was integrated into ceremonial practices, but also given veterinary care and raised locally, right? Each one of these contributing little different pieces. But as we sort of see them stitched together, this incredibly rich kind of tapestry of that antiquity of that horse relationship began to emerge. And I think because of the investment of so many partners, especially on the native end, we were able to really understand connections that we, you know, folks like myself could have missed with a different team. One of the things that's so important about this is this like collaboration between different tribes and scientists that work in ancient DNA or scientists that work in the history of horses. It was a big collaboration with kind of a lot of give and take. Not only was it difficult to get all these different perspectives and people together, and they they had to work really hard to bring everyone onto the same page. It took a lot to literally bring them onto the same page. (laughs) I mean, just even from the very beginning, just submitting the paper. Every stage of this process tested the limits of the scientific system. That begins literally with entering people's names. The actual letters involved in inputting the full Lakota names, the system wasn't equipped, right? So we had to have editorial assistance from the beginning helping us with very unconventional requests, right? Our editor, Dr. Vigneri, but also this whole team of folks, Valda, Corinne, even up to Holden, had to think through things like How do we incorporate Lakota translations of a concept into our supplementary material? Or can we put an actual quote, the words of our elders, Loretta, Chief American Horse, directly into the text? The sentiment that William and a couple of the others researchers shared that this is sort of a proof that we can do this. We can bring together these many different perspectives. We can include all sorts of scientific systems in our research. And it's not one way or the highway. These are things that are totally new and different and sort of shocking to the system that we have in place. But we're, there's a tremendous amount of um, bravery, compassion, and kind of persistence from folks at every step of the way. And I think the legacy of that will probably outstrip the individual findings of, you know, this paper or this award or, or anything. We're going to switch to Yvette Running Horse Collin. She's a researcher at the Center for Anthropobiology and Genomics at the University of Toulouse. She has some thoughts on the future of this collaboration. Around the world, you can see that organizations, governmental systems, people are 
asking for Indigenous peoples to step forward with their traditional knowledge and their sciences. We have our own scientific systems that developed completely separately of the Western scientific system. At least for us as Lakota, our entire scientific system is based on the sustainability between all life forms. So it's a critical time for us to be able to come forward and begin this conversation in this way. And for us, receiving this amazing recognition is such a beautiful platform and it sends a message to the world that this is a good time for this now and we can create a safe, respectful place uh, to have true scientific exchange and dialogue. In our way, collaboration is very deep, it's very intricate, and it's completely connected. And in Western science, that's not often the case, right? People maybe put their piece of knowledge forward and then they put something together. That's different for us. And so it was wonderful that our collaborators were open and willing to understand the, the level of collaboration that we do. And it allowed us to get to this point. Now for us, this is very much a beginning. Uh, we're very excited about where this is going to go. And it took us years to learn how to work fluidly together like this. Now we're ready to roll. All right, Christy, this is super cool. Thanks so much for talking about the horse paper, which is basically what we've been calling it for like an entire two-year period. But uh, let's also talk a little bit about what else you did at the meeting. You know, who else did you get a chance to talk with? What else did you see while you were there? Yeah. Oh, gosh, it was such a good meeting. There were so many amazing sessions that I attended. I think one of my favorites was a session on imageomics, if I'm saying that right. They tried to make us practice it, so I'm hoping I'm saying it right. So they basically have started this new discipline of science which looks at imagery or visualizations, both from things like pictures, literal visuals like that, but also, you know, LIDAR data and these other sorts of, of visualized data streams. And taking that and using AI and our amazing computing power that we have now to analyze all of this data and create like computer vision, not just human vision. Can you say the word again? Imageomics, I think. <laughs> Can you spell the word, Christy? I'm not got it's it. It's imageomics. Okay. Omics. Yeah. Imageomics. Okay. Imageomics. Imageomics. So like we're adding omics to things when we are just like, just fire hose of data. You got to like figure out patterns you got. And then this is patterns in the visual. Oh, it's so interesting. Yeah. And it was really fascinating because, I mean, they showed a whole bunch of different projects, but one of the ones they talked about was this project turning an AI into a taxonomist, essentially. And so they taught this model, this algorithm to look for traits in a very piecemeal way. So like if I'm trying to identify a bird, right? I don't sit there and just look at the whole picture and say, oh, that's a bunting I, or whatever, right? I'm looking at like, what color is the eyes or what color is that band on the wings? What color are the feet? You know, these very different discrete traits. And so this AI that they built does that. It, it looks at the, and from its own set of data, figures out what those traits are and where to look and then looks at them all and then can classify really closely related species, but tell them apart this AI can look and see what are like these really tiny differences between the mimics and the regular species. And it can tell 
the species apart. It was, it was blew my mind. <laughs> Are they using the UV? <laughs> no, no. This is just from the from regular pictures. Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, and that's the what's fascinating. But then they also were able to do what they call like butterfly vision or bird vision. So they were able to take things like the known visual acuity of butterflies versus humans versus birds. And then look at these images, quote unquote, with these different acuities and see how the butterfly, because the butterflies need to be able to tell each other apart. Right. They need to mate with the right butterflies. And that's how you learn about their evolution, right? You can't just say, well, to people, these are the sexier butterflies. We need to right. know what the butterfly thinks of its friend over there. Right. And how, how does it know yeah. that the four spotted one over there is the other species? So interesting. It was Absolutely mind blowing, and the the kinds of information that they were pulling from this, and then I, I just really love the the sentiment that also it can go beyond our vision because you know science has always been visual, and the computer can see things that we can't. Computer vision isn't constrained by our vision, and they they showed that with the the bird versus human vision, and they're like, do you see a difference between these? And everyone, of course, is like, no, no, we don't. <laughs> like, because the birds have better vision, that they have a better visual acuity. So we can't see the acuity that they see right? because we don't have it. And so the two pictures look the same to us, but they did not look the same to the computer. Super interesting. All right, Christy, thank you so much for coming on, for being our roving podcast reporter at this year's AAAS meeting. If you want to find a link to the coverage of the meeting, or a way to subscribe to the daily newsletter, Science Advisor, just visit science.org slash podcast. It'll be linked from the episode. And yeah, thank you so much, Christy. Thank you for having me. In addition to the conversations that Christy was able to capture during her time at the annual meeting, news intern Sean Cummings also grabbed us some fascinating tape. He spoke with Danielle Wood, director of the Space Enabled Research Group at MIT about the sustainable use of orbital space and how space exploration and research can benefit everyone. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than science careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Sometimes, to create positive change on Earth, you've got to look to the stars. That's certainly true for Danielle Wood, an aerospace engineer at MIT, interested in how space technology and research can promote justice, accessibility, 
and sustainability on Earth and in space alike. I sat down with Dr. Wood before her presentation at the 2024 AAAS annual meeting to learn more. What's your scientist origin story going as far back as you can remember? How do you remember first becoming interested in space generally and then in the more specific approaches towards space science that, that you've become interested in? I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and we had opportunities to basically see what NASA was doing from the point of view of launching Community Space Center. When I was young, I was also in my mom's classroom for a couple of years. She had a policy that when there were announcements about space mission launches that we would go outside from class and try to see it. She invited somebody who had experience working in the space program to come to our class and do a rocket launch day. I picked one of the roles that let me help push the button to actually launch the rocket that day. I thought I really won. <laughs> so I think things like that were just ingrained in our culture, this idea that space is exciting. It didn't mean that I planned to have a career in it, but very fortunately, in my high school, we did have some great teachers and guidance counselors, and one of them advised me to apply to NASA's summer high school apprenticeship research program called SHARP. And I was there for the launch of the Chandra X-ray Observatory. It was in July 1999. And it was special because Eileen Collins was announced as the first female commander of a space shuttle mission. Also on the flight was uh, Dr. Catherine Coleman. And a night launch is a special kind of thing. The light from the launch fills the night sky for a few seconds as if it was daytime. And a little bit later after the light, you, you feel the power of the space shuttle mission kind of hits you as a sound wave. And you just think, this is something almost impossible. And yet they're somehow launching this telescope to x-rays into space on this crazy rocket and there's two ladies over there apparently that are awesome and have PhDs. Like what, what a great place to work. So I decided to study aerospace engineering because of that. But even though I was really excited about it, I had another question which was that, you know, let's look at the broader community of black women and many of them don't get to go to my team in the US but also across the world. And I thought, well, that is not fair. And I think if I'm so lucky to be here, how can my life somehow address these kind of unfairness aspects of life? Mm -hmm. A friend said that she was going to go volunteer at a school in Kenya uh, over the summer, basically after my first year in college. And that seemed like an interesting opportunity to kind of link back to my issues that I saw. So I spent the summer of 2001 visiting and working at this school and doing sort of lessons in English and math. I went back to that school two more times. And I kept asking, you know, can I get involved with projects related to sort of African development, opportunities for girls to have better education? and also still work at NASA or some you know, space program. And eventually I met some NASA people who had similar questions. They wanted to use NASA technology to help people in different countries mm -hmm. and to kind of think about who had sort of less access to basic services, education, food, you know, protection for the environment. And I thought, oh, the, these are people that have the same value I have and they actually work for NASA. Amazing. <laughs> and that, that totally switched my plan. And then I said, oh, I'm gonna dig into being in the space career, but I'm going to try to ask how I can be involved in space and keep my interest in sort of African development or equal access to education and you know rights of women all central in what I do. What does it look like for space exploration and technology to be used or designed for everyone? You know, this line I saw in your bios all over the place, space is for everyone. Mm -hmm. So what does, it, what does it look like for space engineering and technology to be, to be designed for everyone with justice and accessibility in mind versus not doing so? Sure. Um, are there any, any examples that, that come to mind? It's great to think about what it means for space to benefit everyone. And I think there's two dimensions to ask. I often say, I first would ask, how can I redesign space systems that were not designed for everyone, but it could be fixed, I'd say, to make them more effective? And the second would be, what about the new things we haven't built yet? Let me start with the case of things that already exist. A great example is the global positioning system. When the US was first building this technology, it was directly for the purpose of guiding missiles. I was and you could say, well, there's some benefit because if you guide a missile more effectively, you can avoid hitting civilian targets and try to hit military targets. So hopefully fewer civilian casualties. 
But nonetheless, it's an instrument of war. It turns out that many groups besides the military would like to know where things are. They like know where they are and where vehicles are and where like items that have little sensors on them are. And now so many of us depend on our daily life having satellite-based positioning throughout my day. I'm like, I need to go from here to my hotel, I need to check in. I'll be using my satellite positioning throughout. But even for very particular humanitarian things, like during a disaster, there may be a need to have positioning information. Uh, and you're doing animal tracking to try to address mm -hmm. invasive, or invasive or endangered species. So there are examples where that has gone from being, uh, you know, particularly in military technology, all the way into a, a true social you know, benefit that so many of us would depend on. Well, another example I'll just close with is in Chile and South Africa, they have a natural advantage based on their location and the weather and the sort of you know, weather patterns, atmospheric patterns. There are places in those countries where it's ideal for doing ground-based astronomy. There's been indigenous astronomy in those areas, so the people who live there, they know that astronomy is what you do in those places for many generations. So Chile is a great story where They've been a popular place for international telescopes for a long time. And there's, there's certain Chilean uh, researchers who've highlighted there are some periods where many international players would come to Chile and invest in telescopes, and international people would have observation happening in Chile, but Chileans were not so much involved. And the Chilean government said, oh, we want to consciously ask, how do we involve the Chilean universities and the Chilean school children and make sure there's a pipeline of uh, next-generation astronomers or people in related fields who are benefiting and they and making laws, for example, that an international telescope must include Chilean um, researchers as well. So these days, there's much more of a connection between an international benefit of having, you know, many people playing uh, in Chilean space, but also the Chilean community. So I had a chance to go to Chile and meet the Chilean astronomers. Many would say, our PhD program was enabled because our government put this in place. I met school children who are part of communities that they go around to their neighbors explaining the benefits of having a natural environment where you can have excellent uh, astronomy. And they have little t-shirts that say, we are the protectors of the night sky. The other thing was designing new technologies. So what are, what are some new systems or tools or technologies uh, for promoting uh, justice, accessibility, sustainability through space that you and your team are excited about? The one that I'd like to talk about as a, partly as a proof of concept, I'm trying to prove that I can use beeswax as an ingredient for fuel on small satellites in space. But I feel like if I do that, then it's just like, it throws up many questions, and one of them is like, why can't we use natural materials that don't cause climate change in their production? And beeswax is interesting. The reason I'm inspired that way, it comes from collaborating with others who have been studying candle wax, which is also a very beautiful idea. Candles are certainly a peaceful image. And there's a team at Stanford that identified in the 90s that the candle wax, common paraffin, uh, it can be combusted. It's actually just made from carbon and hydrogen, so if you mix it with oxygen under pressure, it burns. And it's low, low, low cost. It's just that most candle wax in our current market comes from the production of fossil fuels, and it's sort of a natural byproduct, so it's, it's very plentiful and affordable because it's, you know, we do a lot of fossil fuel production, so that's fine as a starting point. I think it's a good place to research. But I thought, well, there's other waxes. You can make waxes from plants and from, you know, of course, animals. Like, these make them naturally. So to think, like, could there be this material, but also the actual production process is actually a, a carbon sink rather, instead of a carbon source, right? And so part of what I'm doing now is a series of experiments, first on planes and then on rockets and then on the space station, just to find out how the manufacturing would work in space. Yeah. And then later I want to try uh, actually combusting the wax. And I wanna, I'd love to have sort of, you know, this question of, could I learn? Is there a potentially interesting question of having compared the different bees and the different waxes? Do they behave differently also when I want to manufacture, in this case, a grain of fuel in gravity? Maybe, uh, it may be, I don't know, that the melting and the density and sort of the reaction to my gravity could be slightly different for different kinds of these bikes. So if so, I'd, I'd love to know that. And then to be able to say like, this country has a particularly wonderful beeswax to be used for space. And then that country will become a, a space exporter. What are some of the most common 
or most significant roadblocks that you encounter when trying to either design these new systems or technologies or um, you know, redesigning old ones for justice and sustainability? So a great example, I think one that I really spend a lot of time on is asking, why is it so hard for people to use NASA's free data about the environment? So you can take measurements from space using optical light, or using radar, and um, using lasers, and you can get all those interesting measurements about the atmosphere, about the polar ice caps, the oceans, inland water, trees, many beautiful things. So the data gets put online, these interesting websites, many different websites, <laughs> so first you have to know where it is, and it's free. Like, as scientists can go download them, and they're, they're designed for people who do earth science and have PhDs in earth science. So the assumption is that the person who might download it had mentorship from somebody else with a PhD who taught them some specialized software tools, and they have expensive computers, and they have time to sit down and work through all the data sets and really understand it and then use it. All of that's super helpful if you're a scientist. So what's not true is if you're a policymaker, you know, addressing mangrove management in Brazil, or addressing cultural resilience in Indonesia, or addressing drought in Angola, I have projects in all these areas. It's, you didn't have time. I mean, you did other things with your life. You didn't get the PhD in remote sensing with microwave sensing. It's not your specialty, right? You're a specialist in drought response. So it's true that, like, you can have free data, and that's great, but it hasn't yet been customized local solutions or designed such that people who don't have PhDs in our science can use them. And it's possible to overcome those, but it takes time and money. So we often are asking, what's the, the balance between technical quality of the information and convenience of using it? If using space technology to promote sustainability on Earth means putting these satellites up in space to sense things like soil moisture or whatever else you want to detect back on Earth, it seems like that might be counter to sustainability in space because you're putting more and more of these objects up there. We're at a critical point, and I would actually say a dangerous point, or like a point of great concern, where we are able to send things in orbit on the Earth on a regular basis, and we've almost sent too much. We don't exactly know how much too much is, but we're probably getting close to it, which is like so many things in space that we can't track them all. At the global scale, there's not a central place to document where all things in space are being operated. Plus, there's many objects that are not, they're derelict, they're old, they're trash, and there's no one who's actually operating officially anymore because you can't talk to them anymore. That kind of behavior of like creating hazards and leaving trash and like having unsustainable behavior is something I'm going to spread, right? If you go to the moon, if you go beyond the moon, if you have stations living, they're orbiting around the Earth. So what I want to say is, our responsibility toward behaving well is going to get critically, critically important, and we haven't finished planning that or thinking clearly about it. Like, I used to be focused entirely on the part of, like, let's have satellites in space so that we can monitor the Earth. And then I became more sensitive to the idea of two ideas. One is that my country, the US, where I'm a proud, you know, born and raised citizen, uh, we have put a lot of things in space such that when I work with colleagues, like, in African countries, it's like, I started to realize, like, oh, like, the US is taking so much of the capacity of being able to operate in space. The other countries might want to also have their own access. One challenge is that the US does already take a lot of the popular places to operate in space, and the other countries would have more danger to go there. If there were just going to be, you know, one or two um, commonly held notions oh. or stereotypes or misconceptions about space exploration, space technology, how it's done, how it's created, who does it, who it's for, that you would like to dispel, what would those be? I have a long list of misconceptions <laughs> about space I'd love to dispel, and I wish I could have 10 or so. Um, let me try to do two or three. <laughs> One is that, I, you know, as a person who's grounded in sort of African diaspora studies, I'd love to share that, like, there are so many uh, countries that see space as their heritage. And then I say, wow, people in my country in the U.S. don't know that you're out here in Angola and, you know, Rwanda and Ghana doing this great work, and how fun is it to share that? So point number one is there's space leaders all over the world. Point number two is that space is not the Wild West because there are indeed treaties that were negotiated with a lot of 
uh, clever diplomacy in the 60s and 70s. And by the way, one of the most important things of those treaties, it says that um, we wouldn't put weapons of mass destruction in space. So early on, there was some fear and some possibility as the nuclear age was opening that the US and Soviet Union could have put warheads that kind of sit on orbit all the time pointed at each other from space. So that could have happened. And I would say that the reason it didn't happen is due to this treaty. And those who looked around and said, we don't necessarily want to constantly at ready nuclear war. But our treaties do leave some flexibility since they did not know. The treaties could not have guessed all the technologies that would come about, which means, well, you have to further clarify how to follow them over time. So it's really important, good questions, which means that today's youth, they're in such a great position. Part of my fun job as a professor is to say, how do I get you know, middle school students, high school students, college students like, in, in charge of answering these questions because it's their, it's their future that's coming up right, right away. I lead a program to train middle school students to program robots on the International Space Station so that they can say like they're already working on space robotics and like they themselves can say, yes, I'm a space person and when I grow up, you know, I'm gonna be involved with voting on issues that might affect how we you know, are peacefully operating on the moon. And it started when I was 11, so that's my future. That was news intern Sean Cummings talking with researcher Danielle Wood about how space can benefit us all. You can find links to these talks and to the newsletters that Chrissy mentioned at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with producer Ariana Remmel and researcher Daniel Rovoski about the multitudinous possibilities of snakes. Snakes. These slithering, sinuous serpents elicit a lot of strong feelings in people across both human history and cultures. Snakes are technically a subgroup of lizards, which together make up the order of scaly reptiles called squamata. But looking at the roughly 4,000 species of snakes found on Earth today, you'll see that these fascinating creatures have noodled their way into myriad lifestyles and habitats. So how did snakes as a group evolve to be so diverse? This week in science, Daniel Roboski and colleagues wrote about how snakes likely owe their extreme biodiversity to a burst of innovation early in their evolutionary history. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Ari. Thanks for having me. So why snakes? How did you become interested in this group of reptiles? That is a question that the answer to which goes back a long time. And I've been always been interested in snakes as a biologist from a I was a childhood snake enthusiast, but more generally thinking about the kinds of questions I've been working on in my career. One of the things that we are really interested in is the diversity of life. One aspect of that that often isn't appreciated, you know, everyone's familiar in some ways with the fact that there are these spectacularly diverse groups of organisms on the planet. But paired with that, there are often many, many other groups that aren't particularly diverse. And there are many groups that have been downright species poor throughout much of their existence or groups where we can look back in deep time in the fossil record and see that they have barely changed in terms of their anatomy, their structure, their way of life. It's a real pattern. It's played out over and over again. So one of the ways we try to get at that question is by taking a very large view of groups of organisms like the squamate reptiles, lizards and snakes, with about 10,000 or so species. And so that gives us lots of instances of potentially of groups that have you know, managed to diversify and lots of groups that haven't. So we wanted to say, if we take this large view of lizards and snakes, can we find some of the keys that explain why some groups have become really successful and why other groups haven't? I would also say that when we define success, I'm using this sort of informally in the sense of 
has a lot of species or has become very ecologically diverse. Can you tell me a little bit more about how snakes are related to other reptiles? For example, what makes snakes different from lizards? That's a really good question with an answer that is surprisingly difficult to pin down precisely. From a perspective of a family tree, snakes are within lizards, so they're a group within this broader whole. And most of the traits that people would think of as snake-like end up not necessarily on their own being diagnostic of snakes. So there are, in fact, a number of highly specific anatomical traits that really make snakes unambiguously snakes. But from the perspective of all the informal kinds of traits that we might talk about, like leglessness. So leglessness has evolved repeatedly across squamate reptiles. So many, many groups have lost their legs independently. It's one of the most remarkable things to me that there are so many groups of lizards that have these snake-like traits. And yet there's still this sense that snakes have done something from an evolutionary perspective that these other groups of lizards have not. So it seems like the evolutionary family tree of snakes and lizards and how they fit in with reptiles is incredibly complicated, which is what your team was seeking to investigate. So I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about how you went about collecting evidence to see more about what these drivers might be. Early on, we decided that to address a question like this, we were going to have to work across several different types of data, and we wanted to bring them together. So on one hand, we needed a really good evolutionary tree, an understanding of the relationships between species, the timing of the unfolding of those relationships. That's this process known as, well, the, the structure is known as phylogeny or evolutionary history. And the best way of doing that now is, frankly, with genomic data, which we can use in conjunction with the fossil record to make inferences about time. And you know, we had essentially DNA samples from, usually from museum specimens that had been archived in accessible natural history collections. These are specimens from around the world that spanned a large fraction of higher level reptile diversity. So we had about a thousand tissue samples like that, and we sequenced partial genomes from each of those. And we used all that information with a bunch of sophisticated computing methods for taking that, that genomic data and turning it into an evolutionary tree. On the other hand, we knew we needed a bunch of ecological data, and some of these data are not very easy to get. So this is data on the diets of snakes and lizards in particular. So most previous studies have worked at that much coarser scale of essentially coding species as eating vertebrates or eating insects. We said, you know, that is really a fundamental limit to how much we can know about how evolution has happened. We're going to take a completely different approach. We're going to go right to the raw specimens, get as many direct observations of what species we're eating, and we're going to synthesize all that together. And so the best way of getting that kind of information is from preserved museum specimens because you can access their stomach contents. And those stomach contents are this tremendous window into, you know, what an organism has been eating. We can go in and see, hey, here is a snake. It has this species of bird in its stomach. Or here is this particular species of lizard. And it has this mix of termites and ants and beetles in its stomach. It's really difficult to collect that kind of dietary information without preserved specimens because a lot of these animals are very, very difficult to observe in nature. There are many, many animals in our data set here where no one has ever seen them eating a thing in the wild. I would not have expected that museum specimens would also preserve stomach contents, but I guess now that's kind of obvious. Were you able to see a difference in the diets that snakes versus non-snake lizards have evolved to prey on? So honestly, that is one of the most striking aspects of our study. 
There has been speculation for a long time about ecological differences between snakes and lizards. Like herpetologists who specialize on these things have this intuition for the idea that these things are different. That said, there has never been any broad scale quantitative synthesis that really gets at this particular question. And so, you know, with these 60 some thousand dietary records, when we looked at this and plotted these things out, we could immediately see that there was this massive fundamental shift between snakes and lizards in terms of what they're doing dietarily. And I mean, it is so different that, you know, to a first approximation, almost every lizard is essentially a specialist on arthropods. So your insects and arachnids and so on. And to a first approximation, every snake isn't. So it is a really, really big split. And some of the really interesting things are that when you get these crossovers, what are those groups like? Turns out there's a whole bunch of interesting things that happen. When snakes go back, essentially, and eat the things that seem to be lizard-like, namely arthropods like insects or other invertebrates, it turns out that snakes usually eat different invertebrates than are being eaten by lizards. So, for example, what you rarely see snakes specialize on are things like insects and spiders, but you will get some oddball lineage of snakes that have evolved specializations to feed on things like snails and slugs and earthworms. And in some cases, what I like to think of as dangerous or armored or defended arthropods like centipedes or scorpions or spiders, but they don't eat for the most part the you know, things that are sort of the easy picking resources that most lizards tend to eat, things like ants and termites and beetles and spiders and grasshoppers and crickets. Those things are largely off the menu for most snakes. And snakes really tend to specialize on vertebrates in particular. And the other thing I would add to that is there is a big difference. And this is another new result to our study that I would say has been speculated about but never really tested which is that snakes really are more specialized than lizards in terms of the, the diversity of prey items that they will feed on. So if you think about the dietary niche of the average snake species, it is much narrower in terms of the taxonomic things that it will eat than the average dietary niche of a particular lizard species. So am I understanding then that snakes as a group eat a larger diversity of prey items, even though snakes as an individual species, might be very specialized in what kinds of foods they're going after. That is absolutely correct. So snakes on the whole span a much broader range of total prey items. And yet, if you look at any individual snake species, you find that they tend to be more specialized overall. So with all of these different data sources, what stood out to you in terms of the characteristics that contributed most to snake biodiversity? If I was to summarize this to the simplest possible explanation, it is, I think, the fact that snakes evolve faster than other groups. And we find that across the board, most axes or dimensions of snakes, whether it's their ecology, their diet, their anatomy, the way they sense the environment through their chemoreception, most of these aspects have not only shifted between snakes and lizards, but they are changing even to this day faster than they are in lizards. It's like they just run hot. The whole snake evolutionary engine is running faster than it is in lizards. I think it's a huge question to figure out precisely why that is. It's one we can't answer with our data, but we can definitively say on some level that they have this property and it does separate them from lizards. And there's a really good reason why we think that that would be connected to their success. Did your results say anything about when this started? 
The answer that I think we have come up with in this sense is that it's complicated and perhaps even something that we will be unable to answer in terms of finding the precise trigger. But I can tell you that loosely, we are confident that this sort of stuff happened from the late Cretaceous to, let's say, the Paleogene. So it is roughly around the time when non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. So the way I would think about this is that there are all these things that have changed in the ancestor of snakes, perhaps in concert, where we have these synergistic changes happening in the way their skulls evolved, in the way they have evolved to use the landscape through their sort of locomotion, in the way that they can sense the environment and acquire prey. And collectively, it seems that the outcome of those things is what gives us snakes today, this tremendous diversity of snakes. Now, if you are trying to establish the precise cause of a particular thing that has happened, and it's really only happened once, then you are going to have a hard time with any degree of statistical confidence unambiguously saying that change X caused this particular type of outcome. That's one of the reasons that in the paper we use the word singularity. This is a word that has been used in cosmology, for example. It's it's sort of a one-off kind of event where your information that you had available to you before it happened wasn't sufficient to tell you that you were going to get this big sort of event. So in that sense, there's still this big mystery. That's simultaneously why we think of this and use the word singularity. But it's still also that we don't have confidence in the precise cause. And it may be something that we will never be able to be able to establish causality for, especially if it's a one-off type of event that involved the synergy between multiple types of things. Does this tell us anything about conservation strategies or how we might better understand the natural history of these animals as our world continues to change? There are huge chunks of Earth's surface, often with very high species diversity, where most of the species are simply very poorly characterized. While it's not necessarily an, an immediate application of our work, it certainly showcases the importance of this type of basic natural history data for answering these fundamental questions about life on Earth. And I mean, I can't stress enough how few species on Earth we have this type of information for in general. And it's, it is this enormous challenge for our field to recognize that we are living here in a world where species are going extinct for a variety of reasons, or their populations are changing in real time because of human impacts. And we haven't even collected the most basic aspects of their biology, including things like what they eat, how abundant they are, how they use the landscape, what eats them, all of these things we need to really understand how life has come to be the way it is, along with what we need to do to conserve a lot of these organisms. And even worse than not having the data that we need, we are essentially burning that data in real time. So, you know, if I had like one priority in that sense, I would say we should be collecting as much data about the world and especially the places that are data deficient as quickly as we possibly can because there is not enough time and there are not enough resources to do this well. And it is the one thing that in 20 years or 50 years, we are going to most regret not having done. Wow. Thank you so much for joining me, Dan. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Ari. It was a, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Daniel Roboski is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and a curator at the Museum of Zoology at the University of Michigan. You can find a link to the research paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine, or you can listen on our website, 
scienceorg podcast. This show was edited and produced by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Special thanks to all the folks at the AAAS annual meeting, particularly the heroic efforts of Sean Cummings turning around his space segment at light speed. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.